Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCoy. And as I am each time we do this, I'm really, really, really excited to be here. Eric, my friend, my co-host, good to see you. Good to see you. How are you doing? As always, man, I'm living the dream. Excellent. Love to hear it. So before we get into the talking point segment, a little bit about what's coming in our case study and our insight segment. This week's case study is PDC Energy's Energizing Our Community Program, which is a 10-year endeavor around volunteering incorporated within the, the business itself. Amazing story there coming with a little bit of insight with a non-oil and gas, again, in insight perspective from Erica Hornsey, who is the executive director of the Houston Community Tool Bank, which is a nonprofit here in Houston. So we're really looking forward to that. But before we get into that, as we do each week, we're going to start with our talking points. And we said this a couple of times before some other talking points, Eric. You know, OGGN has this network of people that we talk to. And one of the people that I've come across and, and seen a while back as we got started through the network and promoting other podcasts was Olabunmi Olajade, his Energy Talk podcast. And as I was listening to it, because I just became a fan, he had a recent series called Campfire. And in it, he got voices from all over the world, Nigeria, India, Bolivia, here in the U.S., and Nepal, which I thought was just an amazing endeavor. And they discussed an, a vast array. We're not going to be able to get to all of them, but just these massive variety of topics that, that dealt with things like energy literacy, what do you do with nuclear waste, renewables, and all kinds of other aspects, not just in an oil and gas perspective, but in a true energy perspective. And there was an element around youth as far as that goes. And so it's one of those points that, you know, we hear right now, especially around ESG investing, that it's being pushed by quote unquote millennials, right? We hear this all the time. It's, oh, it's because the younger group is coming in. And we hear this word millennial typically described a lot of times in perspective of, you know, kind of this up and coming generation, young, as far as that goes. So I'm going to nerd out here for just a second. <laughs> just for a second <laughs> just, or? Just, well, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to announce it for a second, but just to kind of put some perspective on it. So millennials are defined as anybody born between 1981 and 1986, which means as of right now in 2020, that means an age group of 24 to 39. And so I think a lot of times we don't really see, you know, that that's, that's something that we kind of tend to think about what is now these other, there's two actual generations before that are now, are they're younger, this Gen X and Gen Alpha. Now, I don't know who comes up with this stuff or where the exact lines are drawn, but that's kind of what's out there. And uh, as you and I are part of the Gen, I think Gen X is what we are. I think we're X. <laughs> we're X, which is, which is before that. And so it, what it tends to tar start talking about is differentiating attitudes, generationally speaking, and stuff of that nature. And so, and so as we go into this, I thought it'd be great to ask Olabunmi to come on and really talk about not only his series, but also getting that, that, that younger perspective, if you will, as far as that goes. And so before we start talking to him, though, I wanted to ask you a question, Eric, in terms of as these things are moving, as ESG is looking at, you know, investing and being, you know, and having an impression, whether it's COVID, the younger generation, a combination of both. When you think about, you know, your age and your kind of your perspective relative to your experience how do you see that right now in terms of kind of like, I mean, do you consider yourself a Gen, Gen Z, Gen X, millennial? Does it matter? I mean, obviously I'm Gen X. My kids would tell you that I'm definitely Gen X and probably some other words. But, I mean, let's be honest, the, the millennial dollars to investing are the engine behind the ESG acceleration. There's been some other things that have come along that have helped, have been acted as other accelerants where we, we talk about COVID-19 and it's pushing the S. We, and, and in all honesty, it, it's bootstrapped on the e-bucket as well. So when you think about the millennials, they are part of the engine that is pushing this, their dollars, where they want to invest their money. You know, and some of that, they're all laudable goals and, and I don't have an issue with them generally, but it's their dollars that are driving us down this path in many respects. So just as a quick side note question to that is, we say it's the millennial dollars, but are you seeing, or do you believe that there's also dollars like our age and older that are, that are just as interested? No doubt, but I think it's the proportion. I think when you go down to the millennial level, you're going to see a larger proportion of their dollar. You know, if somebody told me that Gen X was 
you know, just as political, you know, politicized and split as the United States was, that wouldn't surprise me. But I think when you think about ESG type issues and you look in that millennial age class, you're going to see it much more heavy weighted to people that are very sympathetic to those causes and that will allocate their own resources and capital in ways that are responsive to those kind of desires and demands. Well, so as you expect, and as you would expect correctly, we're going to have Olu come on. And so before we do that, I'll give a little bit about his bio. He's originally from Nigeria and is currently based in Qatar. He graduated with an undergraduate degree in petroleum engineering from Near East University in 2018. Olu is the founder and host, as we mentioned, of the Energy Talk podcast, a platform that explains complex energy topics through firsthand storytelling for a young global audience. He is passionate about designing energy systems that are equitable and create opportunities in developing countries that suffer from energy poverty and are at most at risk of the effects of climate change. Olu also currently guest hosts on the Titans of Nuclear podcast, produced by the Energy Impact Center, where he speaks to global industry experts on the role of nuclear in the energy transition. He's also building an energy dialogue series for Adapec there in Abu Dhabi, where he gets to interview CEOs and directors of Africa's largest energy institutions on the effects of COVID-19 on operations and their strategies for the energy transition. He previously worked as a business development engineer at an oil and gas service firm, and with all of that, Olu, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So one of the things that you and I, is we, before we did all this, we were talking about you know, kind of where to get started. There's so, you know, between the series and the five different episodes and just all these different places that we could go, I kind of wanted to start with something that you'd mentioned to us in terms of what is kind of something near and dear to you, which we were just kind of alluding to, and that is the energy access and the role of developing countries in this transition. You know, Eric and I talk about this all the time. We come from our perspective, and that's the only perspective that we kind of have, but kind of help us dive into what you see. And when you think about energy transition, when you think of energy development, especially outside of the U.S. and the North American, Western European market, give us some perspective on what it's like out there. Okay. I get asked this question a lot, and I've been thinking very recently on how the best way to kind of talk about this, because it's very different when you're talking about this with people from, from the African continent that kind of relate to the issue of energy access. It's something that they can immediately draw memory from and connect to recent activities in their lives. But when it comes to the global north, like North America and parts of Asia and parts of Europe as well, it's a very different conversation. So I think I'll just share a personal story here. So the night I was born, my mom had to go to an hospital that didn't have any, any electricity at all. And there were some complications during labor. And basically, the doctor decided to have a C-section right there in the dark, basically under candlelight. And as you can imagine, those aren't ideal situations for, for having any kind of operation. And luckily, they didn't have to go through the operation. And I was born normally. And thank God, because that could have been a very different story. And who knows, I would not be here today. And this might seem like a very extreme story, but this is, this is a story of many, many people that are born even today. So I was born in 1996, and that is about 23, 24 years now. And it's still the story for many people in the, on the continent today. So when, when you talk about energy access, it's, it's just about something that's very real to many people, to millions of people across the world. And right now, it's something that's coming a lot worse because when you have a situation where you have green populations in Africa, the population in Africa gets estimated to rise about 40% by 2040. And then you have about... 600 million people that won't have any access by 2030. And this is a large population of people. And it's something that's only getting worse. And when you add that into the fact that energy projects don't receive the financing like they used to do, that people don't have incentives to build coal power plants like they used to. And that usually was the way where people wanted to go and industrialize that, that. That is what they did to generate cheap electricity. But now the investment dollars is moving into um, renewable energy. But now the problem is that how do you integrate renewable energy on a large scale for a continent like Africa, it doesn't have infrastructure already set up. So this, uh, this is just some of, some of the challenges that really faces the continent. So when I talk about energy access, it might sound like something that's very vague, but this concept is very real to millions of people around the world. And that's just something that I just try to see if we can just really connect to the audience because energy access, it's, it's something about equalizing opportunity. So right now, I always talk with that where I stand and the reason why I'm so passionate about, about my platform specifically is because I'm from a place of privilege. My family left Nigeria in 2010 and moved to Qatar. If we hadn't done that, I wouldn't have uh, steady access to the internet to do things. I wouldn't have the ability to research and to learn things. I would have been able to, but it would have been a lot more difficult than it is for me right now. And that just really shows how yeah, the opportunities you have is tied very closely to the amount of energy you have. So like, this is really what it is. So when you talk about alleviating energy access, it's not just about 
having lights in your homes or just having the air conditioning on. It's just really about what opportunities those can create and how what your cap is. And it's about removing that cap and giving people the opportunity to develop themselves and to create opportunities and have businesses thrive and go further. So that's just really something that I just like people and I understand about energy access. It's, it's a very, very human issue. Right. A lot. One word you said earlier, which Sean and I talk about all the time a little bit, is privilege. And I think we talk a little bit about Western civilization privilege. And I think, you know, when I walk into my house, and you said this earlier, when I walk into my house, I don't worry about whether or not the lights are going to come on. I don't worry about whether or not the AC is going to work. And God forbid in Houston if my AC didn't work. But when we think about, and, and I think this goes back to what we opened with, right? On the millennial and the dollars, mm-hmm. it is driven in large part by privilege and a, and a an unawareness, if that's a word, I'm sure Stephen will correct me about that later, but in, there's a lack of awareness about what the, how the rest of the world lives from an energy access standpoint. And so when we think about what Olu just hit on, is how are we going to scale that much electricity or that much diesel or whatever we need for literally billions of people that are going to come online and want to live the same life that we do in the States and in Europe and parts of Asia. How do we scale that? And I think that's the big question in front of us with respect to renewables. And it's also why I believe, and I think you believe that oil and gas is going to be a critical part of the next several decades, regardless. Right. So to that, Olu, there's a lot of, so Olu, to that, can you give, tell us a little bit about there's variable ways to get energy. There's nuclear, there's the renewables is always, always a hot topic. There's the traditionals like that. So in the, U, in the Western kind of context, there's a big push, obviously, to get away from oil and, oil and gas traditionally. In, not to speak for entire continents or groups of people, but in your conversations with these, the gentlemen and ladies that you're talking to right now, what would you say outside of the typical world, if you our world, is it a comprehensive synergistic approach or is it kind of a step approach where you know, oil and gas to kind of get us started, kind of to the older words, to then kind of give it that infrastructure set and then we can kind of migrate and mature into the more renewables or is it throw everything at it that we can at one time? That's a very interesting question. And I, I just had an interview earlier this evening where we talked something very similar to this about how accessible different industries are and the potential for growth in developing countries. So I can't speak for the entire continent of Africa, but I, I can speak very closely to where I'm from, which is Nigeria. So Nigeria, as everybody on this call probably knows, it's, it's still a very oil-dependent country. We still rely very much on the oil and gas sector. So right now, a lot of the investments are going into LNG products and exports, and that's really the direction we're going to. So it's, it's going to be a more natural gas focus in the next 10, 20 years. And really, that just shows the intention. But right now, it's the fact that how do you build out infrastructure? Because I, rem- I mentioned earlier that there's this giant infrastructure gap in the, in the whole of Africa. So right now, the options that are really there right now is either you have natural gas power plants or you have solar mini grids. And those are really the two most popular options I have. So if you talk about things like hydropower and hydroelectricity, it's only a matter of does God love you more than others? Because it, it's, it's very geographic based. So you could, you could have it a lot and it works for you, or you could have it and then it causes some geopolitical issues like, like we see in some parts of Africa. So it's a very complex thing because we still don't have the necessary infrastructure to build like renewables or solar in particular to a, to a very large scale where we can have a grid completely dependent on, on solar, on, on just solar energy generation. And also when you look at the flip side, do you want to invest all that money into natural gas projects? And what is the timeline for the future? Because there's this concept of stranded assets that country I'm really looking forward to looking at very critically right now. And the fact is that it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult. I mean, you mentioned I was doing interviews with Fuadipek about the CEOs and the African oil and gas companies. And the thing that they mentioned very regularly is that it's a lot harder to attract investment into the continent, especially when you're doing traditional fossil fuel projects. So that is really the the problem. And I think this goes across almost every single sector. So financing is, is still such a big issue. And the problem is that even though the financing dollars are moving away from the oil and gas projects, it's not, ne- it's not necessarily going into renewable energy projects. So there isn't necessarily that, that correlation. So what you have is money going out of the continent, but not enough is coming back in. So that just gives you a very interesting, like, how are we supposed to go further? Because if you look at the world in general right now, there's still not a proven model that shows you can have an electricity grid run on 100% renewables. And that is really the, I feel it's an unfair expectation that developed countries kind of have of African countries that since they don't have the infrastructure, they should lean into the direction of renewable energy. It might seem like a good idea conceptually, but in reality, it might not be all that feasible because it presents its own unique challenges as well. 
And also, also something I mentioned, some of these solar mini grids, they only provide like basic electricity. They can't power everything. So as you mentioned, people want to have good lifestyle. They want to be able to have like lifestyles compared to the people who live in Europe and live in North America. And if you want to have that, that is a lot more energy demand. And you need to generate a lot more energy to meet those demands. And that is really something that we need to be very critically of. It's, it's not just enough to just give somebody a small solar home system that powers a small electric fan, a small light bulb, and all these things. Eventually, their needs are going to grow. As they begin to get more comfortable, they want to grow more and more and more. And that means more energy generation. And where is that going to come from? So it's, it, it's, it's a matter of this demand growth and the population growth. Those things play very closely to each, each other. And it's, it's, it's going to be a very all of the above. That's something that I find very critical here because some people make it sound like it's, it's either renewables or nothing else, the natural gas or nothing else. On the energy talk, we, we make it a priority where we talk about every energy source because we believe that when you understand the scale of the challenge where you know that 90% of people who don't have access to electricity are going to come from one specific region in sub-Saharan Africa, when you know that statistics and you see that, your mindset shifts a little bit. You know that there's somebody that, that's going to be born in a similar hospital that I was that has no, no electricity and they're going to have to do operations on a candlelight. That is a horrible situation to be in. And this goes back to conversation of privilege. It's, you have to come from such a high place to make, make statements that you shouldn't consider specific options because they don't align with your values. And I just feel like it's, it's something that gets very lost in translation and come across as very tone deaf, in my opinion. And it's, it's something that we still continue to see, unfortunately. My expectation is that your mother would have been perfectly fine with a very dirty coal plant right next door to that hospital providing power to make her feel better. Yeah, it, it is. When we think about the demand, it, it's not only more people coming online, but it's those people wanting a consumption rate that's equivalent to what you see in North America, equivalent to what you see. It's, you know. They deserve and should be entitled to more than just a fan and a light, right? And so you're going to see not only more people, but you're going to see the demand of those people rise exponentially. And how, you know, with the current African infrastructure and the current technology, you know, wind farms and solar farms are not going to get that done for billions of people. No, and I think that story, and I really appreciate you sharing that story about you personally, Olu, because it really puts things in a real perspective on things. And it is that we're not talking about, you know, enough load capacity just so we can charge all of our laptops and cell phones and all the rest of the stuff or run, you know, three or four air conditioners in our house because it's so big. You're talking about just kind of basic medical opportunities to engage and utilize all the technology that we have, not only in the Western world, but in, in apply it everywhere. And, and I mean, my oldest daughter is 22 and she definitely was not born anywhere near that kind of circumstance. And so to that, though, I want to ask, we're talking, we're kind of talking a lot about these perspectives and the difference of that privilege our privilege versus yours, as you were talking about, and then your privilege, as you mentioned, versus kind of the, the everyday out there who's out there in the place that doesn't have these kinds of things. What is the key to kind of having that dynamic without creating tremendous animosity and tremendous kind of conflict? Because, I mean, a lot of the, especially around the Western world and the U.S., like you said, tone deaf, and we can be that very much so. And I think we need to just kind of own that in terms of our understanding of what's going on. Where can we help kind of bridge that? What kind of language, what kind of perspective can, can we, quote unquote, take to be able to kind of integrate throughout the, you know, the, the geopolitical spectrum? Because you seem to have such a nice pulse on, I mean, look at the people you talk to, Bolivia, Nepal, all over, right? And so, so what can we learn or what would you want us to take away to help us have a better conversation around this kind of thing? Something very important, I think our platform, the Energy Talk, really reflects this is to have be open to opinions that you don't necessarily agree with. Like I, like I said, my degree that I graduated in 2018 was in petroleum engineering, but I feel comfortable talking to people from the renewable energy space. I intentionally sought out a role that had me speak to nuclear experts as well. And I also talk about climate change and policy developments and all these things, because I realized that in order for you to not come across as arrogant or just looking at just what you're good at and just focusing on, on down and just ignoring everything else. And just when you're a hammer, everything you see is a nail kind of scenario. And I feel that's very, that's very important. Having like open conversations, it, it cannot be overstated enough. And it's something that I will, I will keep repeating as many times as I can. You have to be willing to have conversations that some sometimes very uncomfortable to have. And I feel like that's something that unfortunately not, not everyone can do. And I understand that because I haven't spent 20 or 30 years in this industry. So I don't have a family that depends on my income. So I, I can look at things with a lot less pressure. And I think that's, that's really an advantage that I, ha- I have. 
And it's really reflected in, in my generation as well and generation that is behind me because they don't really, they didn't see the glory of the oil industry. They don't know how much prosperity can bring. So their perspective is completely different because all they see is that the oil and gas industry is producing carbon emissions and that carbon emissions is driving climate change. That is really what the generation is growing up into. And we have to understand that, that perspective change. And as to how the developed countries can really help, something really important is really equalizing opportunities and trying to make opportunities as accessible to people in different parts of the world. So earlier in the timeline of the Energy Talk project, I got introduced to these people called Student Energy. So it's a charity from Canada, and they really focus on developing leaders for the energy sector. And they do amazing work. And they've been such, so instrumental to to how the project has developed and just building my confidence in what a youth-led project can actually turn into. Like things like that, they really, really go a long way because what one thing that people have to understand is that when, when you're coming from such a disadvantaged starting point, just any help, any genuine help is really, really well appreciated and little things really add up. And I think that's also something as well. So being, having like that open dialogue and just being very willing to to create opportunities where it's possible. Because right now, I'm fully committed that the, the platform will always remain free. And that's something that obviously is going to come to be challenging because how do we sustain it? And obviously, it doesn't run on goodwill. <laughs> we have to attract funding. So right now, that's, that's a barrier that we're trying to cross. And we're trying to say, how can we make this project a lot more sustainable? And it's something that we have to do it right now because that's just the stage we're at. And during the campus, we spoke to other young people as well doing projects. And it's, it, it almost always comes down to the same things. They have very great ideas. They don't have the network to support them. They don't have access to funding and all these things. So that kind of like limits the way that they can really develop themselves and really show themselves off. I keep saying again and again, like I was very lucky and very, very privileged to have when I did and have the right skill sets to really like communicate these things. And people might have very good ideas, but unfortunately they can't talk like I do. And that's, and that's something that it's, it's, it's counted against them because they already have such a, a very late starting point. And those are really the two factors that I really like to highlight all the time that I get the opportunity to. Very well said. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm still doing the math in my head. So 96 would be 24 years old, right? You're 24, 25? I turned 24 in December, actually. So he's 23. Nice. Nice. All right. <laughs> like no, very well said. And I think the way we would talk about it here is we've got too many people in a bubble that don't understand what's going on around the rest of the world. And they're not open to listening to those stories and hearing and although I, I do appreciate the, the personal story you told because, you know, healthcare and access, it's a life and death issue in many mm-hmm. respects, and we don't think about it that way. And so I think that's critical for us as we think about energy transition and the path forward and what it looks like, not just in California or in Texas, but what it looks like around the world. And for billions of people who haven't enjoyed the lifestyle that we currently live and the wealth that we have, you know, what does that look like as we push forward? Definitely. And so it, it, this time flies quick, Olu, and we definitely appreciate you coming on. And we will put all your references in the show notes and just want to thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to do this. Thanks so much, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And it's been great. Thanks so much for listening to my story. No problem. Thanks, Olu. And with that, so we'll just stay tuned. We'll take a short break and then we'll get to the case study next. Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition. Cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. Welcome to the case study segment of the podcast. Eric, today, these are one of those elements of what we have in terms of an opportunity to talk about. We've tried to stay away from just your pure philanthropy, kind of your pure, just, you know, volunteer group, not, not because, volunteer kind of opportunities, not because we have anything against it, but a lot of times they can be one-offs. A lot of times they can be kind of, they're out there. They don't always have the stability and the, and the steadfastness of a recurring event over and over again. So we could get really wrapped up in the oil and gas industry coincidentally does a tremendous number of those types of events that we could just literally spend hours and hours and hours talking about it. But this one in particular kind of came to me as really, really important. I was listening to Tisha Schuler. She's a, she's a principal at Adam Teen Energy. And she had Katie Tate on from PDC Energy there in Colorado where they're at. 
And as I was listening to this episode of the, of the podcast, one of the things that struck me about what they're doing there at PDC is the longevity of what they've been doing. And we're right. going to be talking today about their Energizing Our Community program. It's in its 10th year. This is the 10th year of their, of their existence. And I just thought, wow, it's, it's impactful. There's tremendous corporate support. There's tremendous participation in terms of their employees. So, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's make this thing happen and let's get, the, get her on the podcast. I reached out invited her on. And so we're here to talk about that. So when you hear about, before we start talking to Katie, when you hear about community involvement, volunteering, stuff like that, what kind of goes through your mind from a career standpoint and industry standpoint? What I love about this is, again, what you said earlier, it's, it's kind of the recurring every year commitment kind of from the top down. You know, we want our employees engaged in the community. We want them helping in the community. We want to do it year over year. It's not a one-off deal. And so, you know, to use the word sustainability, it, is, it has sustained itself, correct? So excited to hear about the program, excited to hear, you know, kind of how it started and, and amazing. Here we are 10 years in and, and the participation level kind of blows me away. Yeah. And then we're also going to have our insight segment following up. And as we always try to do, we try to get something unique. Really fortunate to reach out to somebody who is a friend of mine who's an expert in this area. But on the other side of it, not an oil and gas native, although with a little bit of experience, Erica Hornsey is the executive director of the Houston Community Tool Bank. And so she's going to give us a nonprofit type executive industry standard. She's very well versed, very educated and experienced. So we're going to have her come on after this and give us a little bit more insight. And a very cool nonprofit. Very cool. Yeah. We uh, do hear more. I love tools. So very cool <laughs> nonprofit and can't wait to talk to her as well. Yeah. No, the, their model is really amazing. So before we bring Katie on, i tell you a little bit about her. So Katie has been in the industry for the last nine years and is the senior local affairs specialist for PDC Energy, which is based out of her home state of Colorado. She graduated from the University of Colorado with a degree in communication, which is also the name of the department that she's been in for the last four years. But she isn't quite done with her education, and she's currently working on her master's in public affairs from the University of Colorado, Denver. And so with that, Katie, thanks so much for taking the time to come on. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. So Katie, we like to kind of start in the beginning of this thing. And as we were talking about before, this has been around for 10 years. Can you take us back to the origins of how this, what was the catalyst that got PDC Energy to start this program? Absolutely. So Energizing Our Community Day, and you'll hear me refer it as EOC Day throughout the podcast. As you mentioned, it's in its 10th year. And the reason why it came about, and when I talk to employees that have been around, because PDC has been around the last 50 years, is what really brought EOC Day to the table. Because since the beginning, we've, and we continue to have different one-off volunteer opportunities. So after work, on the weekends, But after talking to employees that were around during the inception, it was from the top down, let's have one day. Let's have one day during the workday where everyone, our employees from our interns to the CEO, go out in our community and volunteer. And it's just expanded so much every year. And every year is a little bit different. And we have to adapt every year. And so I'm really excited to get into the meat of it and then also where we are today, considering 2020 and COVID-19. <laughs> no doubt. The word, the, the thing we cannot get away from, no matter how hard we try. Inescapable. Inescapable. <laughs> so to that, let's fast forward a bit. Like you said, let's go to this year, 10-year anniversary. You're excited. You come into the calendar year thinking we're going to probably knock, knock the socks off of it. So outside of the obvious problem that you didn't expect to see in 2020 that you overcame to make this year happen, can you tell us a little bit about that problem and some others that you've overcome to make this year possible? Sure. So leading up to it, the last few years is it was a tried and true event where it was one day out of the year. And so every year we had to pivot our operations. We have now in Pecos and our office down in Texas is in Midland. And we had it in May, like we did the other offices. Well, the Texas employees reminded us how hot it gets in the summer. (laughs) So we had to pivot to March as an event in Midland. So it was a different day. And then also just different programs that our employees are working on. They can't leave the office for the day. So we partnered with different nonprofits like the Red Cross to have opportunities come into the office. So every year we're pivoting, we're changing. And then 2020 comes and... It was it's funny, I was about to fly down to Midland in March to meet our Midland team to work on this awesome project and the schools closed and then we couldn't fly down. And then we thought, oh no, how are we going to do this? How are we going to continue to give back to the community and have our signature event? And it's funny because we had to fast forward what I've wanted to do the last couple of years is offer virtual opportunities and allow employees, they might not be able to take the day out 
or they might be working with a nonprofit that they're really passionate about and they have different ongoing virtual opportunities is to offer that to our employees. So 2020 just really put, you know, fast forward my long-term goals of making it virtual, in-person, in-office, employee matching. So 2020 was solely virtual volunteering. So we really had to pivot when it came to working with our nonprofits to see what opportunities there were, not burn out our employees and make it a virtual opportunity where they can log into a website or a page and it's user-friendly. So this was a lot of first. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Sounds like it. So as you got through these issues and as you, you, know, you came through this, what did you decide upon ultimately to do relative to the event this year? So I had three, after the Midland, how Midland didn't happen, I had three options in front of me. We could cancel it, reschedule. We could pivot to an, a virtual or we could postpone it to November, December. And we heard from a lot of people that really wanted to do it in person, which I agree. I love doing it in person because you're arm in arm next to employees and you might even be volunteering with our CEO. So it's a really neat opportunity for employee engagement. But I didn't want to rely on the way 2020 was going. I was like, we don't know where we're going to be in the fall, in the winter. So let's pivot to virtual. And so the conversations immediately got started with the nonprofits and our employees to really gauge, is this something our employees want to do? And see if our nonprofits can actually, if it's within their wheelhouse of doing it. And so we built an internal site where employees could see all the different opportunities, make it family friendly. Cause like we all know, juggling, homeschooling, our world has been turned upside down. And just making it user-friendly and fun. And some of the opportunities were as simple as going on a walk and picking up trash with your family or your dog. And so we just really opened up. The last couple of years, it was very, this is how we've done it. Let's expand it. This year, it's let's pivot and almost recreate the wheel. Hmm. So as you did that, so all that being said, it seems like a great opportunity, like you said, to pivot drawn some new ideas, engage with what you have. So what so give us an idea of what actually happened. Some some of the some of the numbers, some of the aspects of how the program really was implemented this year. What was the result? Sure. Yeah. So historically EOC Day is as it sounds, it's a day. It might be a different day like in Midland versus Denver or Evans, but it was one day. It was you had eight hours to go in person and volunteer. Well I didn't want to pressure employees or overwhelm employees who are adapting to, you know, virtual work, virtual learning, virtual everything. And so we made it a month. Employees had a month to volunteer. It was encouraged to do eight hours, up to eight hours or more. And we had an incredible response. And it was just really great to see how committed from the top down our employees and our senior management team are to giving back to the community because as soon as COVID hit, people were reaching out to me. How can we get back to our communities? What can we do? And when we created these opportunities, employees were really excited about it because the longevity of these projects. And so it's not just one day volunteering, but we have a number of employees that now sit on a board, are really involved. They have their family involved. And within the month, we had over a thousand volunteer hours and we have a number of employees who are continuing to volunteer as well. So it's just really great that employees ran with it. Hmm. So we always like to like kind of focus on where the where this impacts in terms of ESG. I think you could probably find many stories that different with the different nonprofits to, to justify some environmental aspects and some social aspects. One of the areas that we always have a tough time kind of focusing on the show, some growth is around governance. And I want to kind of ask you a question internal to PDC Energy, and that's around just, you know, what, can you speak to us of the commitment of the leadership? You know, you mentioned the opportunity to even, you know, rub elbows with the CEO and, and get the chance to spend some time with, with her or him, but not just the CEO, but can you give us an idea of what, why is this so important and what is the commitment like from the senior management there at PDC? Absolutely. So we're really lucky at PDC Energy to have an entire senior leadership team that is committed to the community and really embraces community outreach. You know, they write checks, which is also really important, but they really do like volunteering and they really like not only putting a face to the name of PDC when it comes to a senior leadership to the nonprofit and their staff, but our employees are seeing their CEO, their CFO, all the people like that giving back to the community and actually doing the same work as you are. Food banks, they're boxing, 
you know, canned food with you. They're picking up trash with you. So it comes from the top down. And I just always highlight it's everyone from our CEO down to our intern that's committed to the community. Uh, Katie, it's Eric Johnson. I love what you guys are talking about from interns to CEO. I scribbled that down as you said it. And I have been on so many projects where you get a lot of publicity and PR and push from the C-suite and from the leadership. But when you actually show up at the project, you know, they're not there, right? And so it's exciting to hear that we've got the commitment from the top down, not only to write the check or to, or to be the face, but to actually show up and, you know, do some of the work. And that's great to hear. When you talk about participation levels right now, I'm assuming, obviously COVID has dented that, but historically I'm assuming obviously that leadership, that leading by example and, and, and being out there has had a huge influence on new employees as they come to PDC and they experience their first EOC day and they walk out there and there's somebody from the C-suite and they're like, wow, no, I, I really want to get into this. I just get your thoughts about that as, as just kind of telling the story about people joining PDC and getting their first exposure to that EOC day and seeing that top-down commitment. Absolutely. That's one of the things I love about PDC is the culture and the commitment to the community. And so when it's so funny because new employees are like, I keep hearing this acronym EOC day, what's EOC day? And I'm like, I'll tell you all about it. And it's really exciting because we typically will give employees volunteer shirts. They can pick the nonprofit they want to help with. If there's a nonprofit they're passionate about, you know, let me know. And then also we have team leads on the different projects. So I'll manage all the little groups, but people have an opportunity for leadership positions when it comes to organizing, working with the nonprofit. And then it's just really exciting because the senior management team, they're committed to doing it. And then they, you know, make sure that the folks that work for them are doing it. And it's just coming from the top down. And it's really exciting because we try not to tell employees where so-and-so is going to be. And so all of a sudden, you're arm in arm with Bart Brookman, you know, working in the food bank. And it takes him a second, like, wow, he's doing what we're doing. And introducing them to the nonprofit, actually seeing him there is absolutely incredible. And I think it just says a lot for PDC and our commitment, not only to the community, but also employee engagement and just really showing how important it is to give back to the community. And maybe even a chance to, to boss him around a little bit if he's doing something wrong, right? Yep, that's pretty fun. <laughs> I, bet, I bet. So, so I want to ask a question, Katie, around, I love these kinds of, my wife's in the, in the development world. I have a passion on a personal level around this area. So in terms of my personal experience around nonprofits has been life-changing in terms of my own personal, through a professional environment, it's how I met my wife, who's in that world of development. And so many times in my life, I've experienced these moments where you go beyond the bottom line, you go beyond profit margins and stuff like that. And you have these experiences that just move you. You can't even put a finger on it without naming too many names or something like that. Can you give us some examples of some stuff that you've been aware of that have kind of just invigorated you, this energizing our community idea, not just not just the community, but what has energized the, the people, the individuals that have been a part of this? Can you tell us a little about some of those experiences? Sure. So the first couple that come off the top of my head is we had someone, we have a great relationship with the World Food Bank and we were putting cans and boxes to be shipped. And an employee came up to me and was like, thank you so much for putting this on. I'm like, absolutely. It's one of my favorite days. I'm happy you're enjoying it. And then there was this moment of kind of awkward silence and she got really teary eyed and I was like, are you okay? And she's like, no, I know that, you know, everyone's excited to be here and get back, but a couple of years ago, my family was here picking up food. And just in that moment for her, A, to be vulnerable with me and telling a personal story, but then it gives you an even stronger perspective and knowing that you're doing the right thing is spending the day giving back to the community, helping the nonprofits, and then really serving your community, I think is really important. And then also the Denver Rescue Mission, something similar as we were you know, making breakfast for the folks and someone told me that their dad you know, was on the streets for a couple of years and the Denver Rescue Mission helped and he would come to breakfast every morning. So she continues to do it and has before, but that's one of her favorite places to go because she just, she saw the impact within her family, which it's hard not to even just get emotional thinking of all these stories. And it just reminds you, not only is it important from a company perspective, but also it's so important from an individual perspective to give back to your community. Yeah, it's, it's just an you know, it's amazing to hear that story. You don't really know where you're going to end up in life or where you're going to be. And, and to have 
a place that can help lift you up. And then two years later, you can turn around and be serving and giving back, right? I think that's, that's what's great to hear about that. Katie, one thing I wanted to talk about real quick for our listeners and others who may be wanting to try to push something like this into their program. I love the idea that employees could come in and almost pick their nonprofit or suggest a nonprofit and say, hey, you know what, I've, I've been involved in this. I, I'd love to you know, to have us connect to that. How does that process work? And has that gone smoothly? I, I don't know if y'all vet things or, or what process y'all go through as you kind of try to build out the roster of, of nonprofits that get to benefit from EOC Day. Sure. So we have our legacy organizations that in the beginning of a year, I will reach out to them. And once we have a date picked, ask if they want us to come again, work with different dates. If that doesn't work, we become more flexible. Like I mentioned, having different days because we really want to serve the nonprofits and the employees. Because one of the different things we offered was, because May's hard, because a lot of people go on vacation too, is if you can't do it on May 15th, you have a couple of weeks to go volunteer. So last year that happened that everybody was on a similar vacation schedule. And so we worked with another nonprofit that an employee chose that everybody went there. And so I keep it really open early on in the year. It's I'll reach out to everyone and say, we're starting to build EOC day. Is there a nonprofit that we haven't worked with that you think it would be a good fit and why? And typically, you know, we'll chat on the phone or in my office and just see how we can give back. And if it's not a good fit for that day, I'll continue to work with that nonprofit and see how we can give back. If it's financially, if it's a one-off volunteer opportunity, but I really want employees to be passionate about the nonprofits they and PDC works with. And I wanted to be an opportunity where I don't know everything as much as I want to believe I do. I don't know everything and everyone. So I want employees to bring ideas to me because those are some of the best ideas that have come to me. I think in that same vein, Katie, can you speak a little bit about what is it to a company that's maybe considering this, but looks at it like maybe it's too difficult of a financial commitment or we have to hire somebody or there has to be some sort of structure or there's more on my plate that this isn't really part of the business acumen of what we're doing to kind of, how would you subtly, if you will, kind of push back and say, this is why it's important, not just from a, obviously the community impact, but the business operational impact internal to the company. What I would suggest is start small. If it's just one day or a couple hours with one organization is really get the temperature of employees and senior management and just see how passionate employees are or what they'd like to see and work with senior management to talk about how important it is to get back and then showing them different companies where it's been successful. PDC has grown quite a bit since we kicked off our first EOC day. And that was when we had paper forms and it was just a couple organizations. And now it's, you know, we have an internal website built to make this happen and just really focusing on not only it's important, not only employees want and are interested in this, but also from a reporting standpoint, when it comes to ESG, it's really important to show what you're doing in the community. And not everyone's going to be working with 50 organizations. It's baby steps. I think the hardest part is taking that first step. So, so to that, so how many organizations do you do? Is it about 50 that y'all help on an average basis? 40 to 50. Yep. And what I know COVID and virtual opportunities was a, a huge hurdle this year, but what was the participation rate like this year? Were you able to keep it at the high levels that you guys have done so far? Not as high as years past, but I mean, our, our goal was about 500 volunteer hours and we were double that. So it's not like in 2019, I don't know if I'll ever reach 98% again. That was a really exciting year. And I just think COVID made it challenging, but what I'm excited about the outcome of Virtual Volunteer Month was we're opportunity page called Virtual Volunteer Base Camp, where employees at any time of the day, any day of the week can see different virtual opportunities. So it did, it can continue to give back virtually. And a lot of employees reach out to me and say, this is a great list, but I did X, Y, and Z with this organization. Can we add them? Well, my expectation is that in 2021, I bet you see something that's much like 2019. Yeah. People just itching to get out and do something and get back to some normalcy. So let's fingers crossed that that's the case. Yeah. So before we go, Katie, I was going to ask, so do you get to participate personally on, on this from an EOC day? I do. It's a lot of love and labor and it's one of my favorite days. 
And I absolutely volunteer. And the last couple of years, I volunteered at our Evans office and our Denver office. And uh, a couple of years, we've flown down to Midland. So I absolutely participate. I'm typically the photographer, but I just, I love that day. It's my favorite day. <laughs> so so would you mind sharing like the, maybe the, the charity that you picked and why and kind of why that was important to you? Sure. One of my favorite EOC days was with a animal sanctuary up in Northern Colorado called Loving Arms. And we built a fence and it wasn't a little fence. It was a huge fence. And they put us to work that we were, you know, post-hauling, putting in fences, and then we got to play with the animals. But that was something that was really nice for a office dweller like myself to kick off my heels, put on some boots and, you know, build some fences. So that's another nice thing is it allows us to get out and about and do different things and, you know, get dirty, which is nice. (laughs) I love that. Eric, any last questions before we wrap up? No, I think this is, it's just amazing. I I would love to see this translate out into other corporate environments. I would love to see C-suites embrace it and realize that, you know, part of the story that ONG needs to tell is how we give back and how we Mm -hmm. give back consistently. And I know so many of us do, we just need to get better at just kind of force multiplying that and pushing it out. Yeah. So I guess, so the last, I guess, quick question before we, we, we go, Katie, do you, from a public, from a PR standpoint, do you put it out to the public? Do you guys put out press releases? Do you let the world know what you're doing and that kind of thing into the public? Oh, absolutely. So we have our Facebook page, which we're active on, and we share different community projects, and we definitely highlight EOC Day. In years past, we had a community impact report that focused on our community giving, volunteerism, and our employee matching program. And since last year, we've been working on our ESG report. So that does highlight community as well. So we try to share as much much good news as we can in our partnership with the community and the nonprofits. So I guess in the spirit of what we're trying to do here, do you have you gotten any feedback from people outside of PDC, like somebody who's, for lack of a better word, a civilian, if you will, relative to the industry? Have you ever gotten any feedback from somebody who looks over and kind of goes, wow, that's, that's amazing that the company would do that relative to who you are? Oh, absolutely. I have a lot of family and friends too on a personal level. I share with them what I do and what PDC does and they're just blown away. And then when I work with different local officials and I just, you know, work with people outside of PDC in the industry, they're just blown away that, you know, it's been around as long as it has and it's evolved. It has because like with 2020, the last thing I wanted to do was not have an EOC day, even though we had a pivot. So it just I just love telling the PDC story and our commitment to the community. And I always love talking to people to see how, you know, a community outreach program and a similar thing as EOC Day could work with their company as well. Well, Katie, thanks so much for the time. Just congrats on another on a great pivoting year. And we, we, we look forward to hearing more about this. And congrats or best of luck on the next 10. Yeah, thanks, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. This is our break in between segments. Stay tuned. The next one, we're gonna, as we mentioned, we're going to bring on Eric Hornsey from the Houston Community Toolmaker and talk a little bit about some insight from a nonprofit executive. All right. We'll be right back. Hey, Sean, quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. HPE goes beyond digital transformation. Their unique offerings can redefine your company's experience from edge to cloud to core. They can show you how to create a digital reinvention in oil and gas. Their experts can explain how to use intelligent data and infrastructure solutions using digital technologies like never before to open new revenue streams and results. Sean, where can our listeners find out more? It's a great question, Eric. They can go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and where to download this white paper all about it. Welcome to our inside segment of the podcast. We just got done listening, Eric, to Katie Tate and the PDC Energy around their Energizing Our Community program. Anything stand out to you as far as what we just heard? I think my biggest takeaway from it, I mean, there's so many great things that Katie talked about. I think my biggest takeaway from it was the impact it kind of had at the corporate level. I think when I go and serve, like that good feeling you kind of get in your heart, I think there's such a thing as a corporate soul. And to hear her talk, kind of talk about... But you can hear, I mean, you can hear talking about the new employees that come in and they see what's going on and they see the C-suite people there. And if you don't think that's not really, truly building tangible connections inside the company, like who do you really want to work for? Do you want to work for a CEO that was, you know, doing some post hole digging with you? I think it does change the corporate culture yeah. significantly. So that was my big take. No, for sure. And so we really thought for this insight, you know, we could talk to, to C-level C-suite people about, you know, what it means from a business standpoint. 
But as I mentioned, we, we want to bring in somebody with a little bit more of a nonprofit perspective. And so Erica Hornsey has been so gracious as to join us. So tell me a bit about Erica. She's the executive director of the Houston Community Tool Bank. She's held executive leadership positions in nonprofit organizations and, has, and actually has experience in oil and gas community investment. Erica's work is most influenced by her time on the steering committee of the Social Prosperity Project, a five-year project to build resilience in Fort McMurray's social profit sector to increase its capacity to address complex social problems and enhance quality of life in the region. The project led to the creation of the National Capacity Building Strategy for Canada's nonprofit sector and the creation of a backbone of organizations across the country. She holds a bachelor's degree in arts and contemporary studies from Ryerson University, minoring in nonprofit management and equity and diversity studies. Erica also holds certificates in volunteer management, fund development, and is currently enrolled in Northwestern University's nonprofit leadership program. So I think we have the right lady with us today, Eric. 100% agree. 100% agree. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for taking the time, Erica. So when you hear something like what, what PDC Energy is doing in Colorado for the industry, from your standpoint, what does is, what is something like a 10-year program of that type mean to somebody in the industry? It's amazing. Like, I just, I mean, at the Tool Bank, what we do is we provide volunteers the tools they need to better the community. And when I see corporations stepping up like this to get their employees involved in the community, it means everything. Because, like Katie said, they go in for the volunteer day, but then they join the board. Or they come back with their family to volunteer. And it's kind of that gateway to get them involved in the community. And it just blows my mind that they've been doing this for 10 years. What I want you to do is, because I think it's so cool, and you and I were talking a little bit about this earlier, Sean, was I've gone to so many like community projects and shown up, and people want me to start working, and they show me a ladder, and I'm like, I'm not getting on that ladder. <laughs> totally. <laughs> or why does this shovel not have a handle? I don't understand <laughs> what I'm supposed to do with this. So, so Erica, tell us a little bit more about Tool Bank, what it does, what it provides, because I think it's a super cool charity. Absolutely. And I really think that the Tool Bank in Houston, at least, was born out of employer-led volunteer projects because everybody's done it. You know, when you got up at 6 a.m., you're really excited to give back and like build that house and you get there and there's one drill and 40 people and you're just <laughs> looking around. You're like, OK. I'm just going to wait here for my turn to use the drill. So it comes in the Houston Tool Bank. We've got 20,000 tools, 268 types of tools. And that's everything from hammers and drills to trailers and PA systems and golden shovels for groundbreaking. Basically, all those things that nonprofits use a few days a year or when they have that really big volunteer group, they can borrow it from us. That's just really cool and amazing. <laughs> Apparently, I've had some really bad experiences going to projects, but I have definitely been at the project with one drill and 40 people. Right. Well, I think everybody has because when they come into the tool bank, they're just like, yes, this exists. This makes sense. We've all been there. And not just like 40 drills, but 40 of the same drills. So the bits work for all of them and the batteries can be interchanged. You know, just things to really scale and build the capacity of these volunteer projects. And along those lines of a volunteer project, I mean, one of the big things you're talking about is kind of there's this hard area where everybody gets all excited and wants to, but there's a lot of work that goes into it. You know, Katie talks about it, her favorite day of the year because probably the other 364 days, she's the one in the corner making it, you know, doing all these coordinates because it's not just as easy as just showing up. So kind of help us understand what all that work around a project leads to and why this is important from a nonprofit standpoint. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we get orders a year in advance sometimes. Like we hosted the ELCA. So it's like the Lutheran Church Youth Gathering. 30,000 volunteers for like a week of projects. You know, so like years of planning go into things at that scale. And I mean, on the employer side, I think it's if you have employees who are already excited about the mission of the organization, they're happy to take that on. Like I work with people like Katie who are, you know, planning multiple projects and multiple sites. But I also work with employees who are like, no, I took this on myself. I'm going to do this. I, I want to get my, my coworkers engaged. Well, and it would have seemed like when, when you think about the tool bank and you think about how you guys are trying to scale and make sure you have the right tools and a sufficient number of tools, something like what PDC is doing, which is a repetitive, we're going to do this every year, we're going to get together every year. You've kind of got that built in customer base, so to speak, that allows you to make sure you have the right tools and all that stuff stocked up. Absolutely. And like two companies that we work with like that, that we know, hey, that's coming up in March or that's coming up this summer. You know, we can reach out to them and be like, what are you planning? Is it going to be bigger the next year? You know, when should you get your tool order in? Is there anything kind of out of scope? Are there tools we need to acquire? Because we spend about $50,000 a year on new tools. 
which is like every person's dream, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, do you need a salesman? Right. <laughs> 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 procurement, I'll, I'll do the procuring. So, so speak to us a little bit about, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the logistics. It's easy to get caught up in some of those formats, these kinds of things. But tell us from a nonprofit standpoint, because you can kind of wear two hats in this regard. When you have something that supports you, let's say you're one of those of the 50 that they were talking about at PDC, and you know every year you're going to get these people enthusiastic, supported every year. How does that change the year-to-year planning for, for a nonprofit? Oh, it changes everything, especially if you know you're going to get, say, 25 employees at some point during this month. Like, you can plan everything around when you're going to engage those volunteers. And like we do that at the tool bank, we always meet quarterly to be like, okay, what volunteer groups are we going to have in the next quarter? Can we make sure that they're coming and plan out what work they can do? And we tell all of our member agencies, which are charities, this too, like you really get out of volunteers what you put into them too. So, you know, you want to have a planned project. You want to have something that's really going to engage everyone. So not, so no one's standing around waiting for their drill. Waiting for their drill. (laughs) Yeah. What about, so you said you spend $50,000 a year buying new tools. I want to kind of, I'm assuming those are from corporate contributions, individual contributions, but I assume it's also, it's also the people that are partnering with you to actually use your tools. So somebody, somebody comes in and goes, wow, the tool banks, this is actually really cool. We would love to buy you more drills. I mean, I assume that's how that plays out. Totally. Yeah. So we, we have a small percentage of earned revenue. And like we said, you can get $1,000 worth of tools for a week for $30. So we usually get about fifty dollars to $60,000 that way. We're a small, lean organization. Like our budget's under a half million dollars. So we do some fundraisers. We get some grants, foundation grants, that sort of thing. But absolutely, we get donations from people who try us who are just like, yay, I got my turn with the drill. I'm definitely going to buy more drills. <laughs> right, for sure. And, and that becomes a bit of a, because you're, as a nonprofit, obviously by default, you can't, you know, you're, you have a little bit of a kickback, but it's not really a for-profit model. And you're really kind of, and this is where one of the things that always gets me about the nonprofit sector is you're kind of waiting for the benevolence of somebody else. And so when you see this steadfast program that comes in, it really kind of not only helps you engage, but also helps support you consistently. That I know I keep talking about that, but that's just, just such a, I think that's such an important aspect of what what a nonprofit needs to function. Oh, absolutely. And it's really, it's neat to see like what Katie and her organization has been doing for 10 years. But like, it seems like every year there's more and more of these Mm. corporations stepping up. I think the Houston tool bank is different than the other tool banks across the country because there's so many headquarters here, so many oil and gas headquarters here. So we just get a lot more employee volunteers than other tool banks. So speak to that maybe a little bit around which, I mean, just to, if, if you don't mind, hum, if you can humble brag about, so like how many, on average, how many oil and gas companies come in and use oh, your assets? I will more than humble brag here. <laughs> so I think it was last October, we put blue tools, all of our tools are painted blue, in more than 5,000 Exxon employees' hands for volunteer projects. We work with, I want to say, at least 15 energy companies on a year-over-year basis to support their employee volunteer projects. But then more than that, it's the employees that aren't necessarily going through the corporate social responsibility model, but are just passionate. And we see their the end of their email address and thousands, thousands every year. I mean, we've been open now five years and I was looking this morning and we've put our tools in the hands of 221,000 volunteers in the last five years. That's amazing. And this kind of goes back to what we talked to Katie a little bit about and this whole idea of how do I even get started doing this? Like, how do we even pull this off as as a new company that wants to, or as an old company that wants to get involved in this kind of stuff? And I think one of the hurdles is how do we have the equipment or the tools or whatever else we need to accomplish this? And I think for most of our listeners, they probably didn't even know that the tool bank existed. But literally, if you've got something you're passionate about, whether it's building a fence or whether it's working on a house or there's a, a row of houses in a particular neighborhood you want to work on, you're like, well, how are we going to get all this stuff together? It's literally pick up the phone and call Erica. Absolutely. And like I think Katie spoke to too, like providing trash grabbers so that people can just on their walk pick up garbage. We do that, you know? Like volunteering has had to change in 2020 and we're kind of figuring out ways to do it safely. So it's really neat. Yeah, so maybe help just for that because we have to embrace it in some level, right? So how have y'all changed relative to the pandemic as well? We've changed in a lot of ways. So we shifted our inventory into kind of new and emerging needs for the sector. So plexiglass partitions, mm. contactless thermometers, wireless hotspots, wireless printers, like because everybody's doing stuff outside and nonprofits don't have the equipment to do it. So we kind of pivoted that way. And then we also have just been spreading the word about volunteer projects that are happening because there's, like you said, Eric, like people are thirsty to get back out there and volunteer. Like 
2021 is going to be crazy because people are just ready to do it. And most recently, we've kind of become a hub for PPE distribution to nonprofit workers and volunteers. So in the last four or five days, we've given out, I think, 30,000 masks and... 1,500 bottles of hand sanitizer because there are people who are still out there, you know, delivering food to the elderly and need to be safe. I do think that's been probably one of the amazing stories of all of this is the way that companies and nonprofits have pivoted and just seen need and just like immediately turned to it and said, no, we can do that. We can convert. We usually do X, but we can convert it to Y and we can help out. And that's, you see some of those stories on the news, on LinkedIn, whatever. And that's always just amazing. me, blows my mind. People see need and they respond. Oh, and that was exactly it. Like it was, I got a phone call and I was like, we've got a hundred thousand masks. Could you use them? Yes. Yes, we can. <laughs> Send them quickly. <laughs> bring, them, bring them on down. Right. We'll put them next to the 40,000 drills. <laughs> <laughs> so in the spirit of just as you've seen companies grow into this model from maybe somebody started out and say, hey, we don't know what to do. Can you talk a little bit about a company that may be on the emerging idea? Maybe it's a department or an entire company that's kind of thinking about doing this. How have you seen that play out? And, and kind of that, what's that journey like for a company? Absolutely. So I think like with smaller companies who are just doing this for the first time, we always encourage them to come to the tool bank and see it because everybody pictures like a dark, dingy basement, you know, and we do have a virtual tour on our website, I'll have to say, but it's about being there because it really changes the size and scope of what's possible. You know, when you're, when you don't have to worry about the resource of having tools. And honestly, I don't think we've had anybody that I can think of especially in oil and gas that has done one off and hasn't come back the next year because it just, it really like it's a positive experience for them and their employees. And so many, we serve about 400 nonprofits every year in Houston and it's everything to them to have these groups and to know they're coming. Like it, we wouldn't be able to function, you know, budgets get smaller, impact and needs gets bigger and you need to have these external resources to come in and help you kind of get over that next hill. So I would actively encourage everyone who's even thinking about this to go look at that virtual tour because I think there's probably a lot of people listening right now whose vision is too small and they don't realize what's available to them at the tool bank because I think for a lot of people it is hey we have a lot of man hours we could unleash but we have one drill we have one hammer and we have this one horrible ladder but if you don't if you don't understand the scale of what Eric and Toolbank have over there, I think it would change people's vision. So I would actively encourage everybody to go watch that video or to or to go do a visit. Absolutely, and it's www.houstontoolbank.org. Nice. So I want to ask you, you you have a nonprofit background. Obviously, you have a little bit of an oil and gas background. When you see the new, I don't want to say new, but the the current push around ESG in general in the industry. As somebody who's been on both sides of that fence, what does that say to you right now about the current climate, where we're going? I'm happy about it. It's the direction we need to go. And I think that nonprofits hold a lot of power. We give these companies a social license to operate and they need to invest in the communities that they profit off of, you know? And I think that the fact that this conversation's even happening, you know, it speaks to how it's becoming top of mind. You know, people want good corporate citizens. And as, you, and as you've seen that, I mean, you can look kind of on both sides of it. It, it just feels like there, it's just a hard thing to kind of put it in a tangible, quantifiable, why it's so beneficial. But if you could kind of try in, in terms of both those sides, why is it so important to do that besides the obvious in terms of the serving? I just think it's so important because I think it, when people get invested in the community, when they get invested in a nonprofit, they care more about their community in other aspects of their life. And I think having like a workforce that is actively engaged in in the community is going to be a win for the company as well as the community. Well, Erica, it's been short and sweet, as we mentioned. And I hate to, anything else you got before we no, go? No, that was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you guys. Yeah. Thanks for all that you do. Thanks for continuing to support the nonprofit world. And thanks for taking the time to come and talk to us. Absolutely, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank right. you. All right. And with that, we're done. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN. And here are the events on deck for March 2021. This month, we only have three events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our two in-person events, our OGGN Here and Now live event on March 4th at Churrasco's in the Memorial area of Houston, Texas, and the Texas Wildcatters Open at Black Horse Golf Club in Cypress, Texas. Next up, we have our three online events, Sarah Week from March 1st to 5th, Transformathon from March 1st to 7th, 
and the TAMU SBE Career Enhancement event on March 26th. Other than these events, OGGN may be hosting some more live streams this month, so make sure to check out our Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website for more information about any of the live streams we have coming up. If you have any questions about the events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for March. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. Ha!